Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, you can, t- and for all of us, invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we are working through this letter, and we are in the middle of, uh, of this letter here. In, uh, we are working this morning, looking specifically at verses 24 to 27. We live in a culture um, that puts an incredible premium on winning, I think, Everything, it seems, has been turned into a competition one way, shape, or another, from academics to athletics to legislating to leisure activities. We, we want to win. And not only do we enjoy winning ourselves, we look up to others who consistently are successful and win. You take a survey of many celebrities that our culture obsesses over, both past and present, without exception, they're people who are winning. They're people who are successful. We want to win, and we look up to people who win. Uh, Andrew Carnegie said, quote, the first one gets the oyster, the second gets the shell. Or George Steinbrenner, the former kind of uh, bombastic owner of the Yankees, said, winning is the most important thing in my life after breathing. He says, breathing first, winning next. And uh, Vince Lombardi, famous uh, football NFL coach, said, winning is in everything. It's the only thing. Those were kind of uh, famous quotes by famous people. And the desire to win, it begins when we're little. It begins even in we're little children. Think about when you play games with a, with a, with a young child. As the game goes on and they, they realize they're probably going to lose, what inevitably happens in those situations? They, they get angry. Sometimes they cry. Sometimes they stomp off and, and refuse to finish the game. Why, why do we do that? Why do they do that? Well, because they want to win. Team sports, we've all been a part of or had a family member, someone we know and loved who was involved in some kind of team sport where you practice for hours on end and, and you traveled great distances to compete, endured injuries to perform. Why, why do you do that? You, you, you want to win. That's the point. Um, many people spend thousands and thousands of dollars on uh, studying and earning academic degrees and various certifications. They stay up all hours of the night cramming for tests. Uh, they stare at the computer screens until their eyes cross. They, they will uh, stay after class to, to kind of butter up the professors to get that, that extra uh, grade, the extra kind of oomph on their grade and the, to get the best scholarships to get accepted to the best schools. Why do they do that? Because they want to win. And uh, we think about career opportunities. After finishing school, people compete ferociously for certain job openings and work long hours for meager pay to move up the corporate ladder. And um, they'll go anywhere, do anything, step on anyone to maneuver into positions of authority and make a name for themselves and and make money. Why do they do that? Well, they want to win. Whether it's games or team sports or academics, or career opportunities. There's no obstacle too high. There's no sacrifice too great. There's, there's no disappointment too devastating. And nothing but winning will do. In practically every area of our lives, we want to be the very best. And I can't help but wonder, what kind of gospel impact would God's people have on our community and our country if They consistently applied the same relentless desire to win at sports or academics or career. They applied that same effort to running 
the race of our Christian lives. You see, when it comes to almost any area of our lives, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. But when it comes to our Christian lives, for some odd reason, many are perfectly fine with mediocrity. We're okay with glaring areas of sin in our life. We are satisfied with a a superficial knowledge of the scriptures. We're we're not the least bit concerned about a half-hearted commitment to the local church. We're content to let our unbelieving family, friends, co-workers never hear the gospel from our lips. And I'm not a runner, and at my age, I will never be a runner. But I know some of you enjoy running. I don't really understand why, but you... <laughs> when you run in those events, though, inevitably when I have friends or people in the church or whatever that that's talk about running, they, they say the same thing. They say things like, it's just for fun or exercise, or I'm just doing it to support this person or that person, or I just want to see if I can accomplish the goal, maybe running a half marathon or something like that. The reality is that very few are seriously concerned about winning those races. When you, when you take a, a compete in a 5K, you're not seriously worried about winning. They're perfectly happy to just be out there and at some point to cross the finish line. Truth be told, that's how some of us, I think, approach the Christian life. We're perfectly happy to be kind of trudging along somewhere in the pack. Some are running this Christian race for fun. Some are running the Christian race to scratch an intellectual itch. Some are running the Christian race just to support another person in their life, maybe a spouse or a grown child or something like that. But at the end of the day... They're perfectly happy if they just cross the finish line and don't go to hell. But as we come to our text this morning, in 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul sketches a very different picture of the Christian life and the effort that you and I are to exert as we run that race. And so that's what I want us to do this morning is consider these verses, verses 24 to 27. Paul says this, Do you not know? that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body. And make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, I want you to notice what he says in verse 24. He says, run in such a way that you may win. The the whole chapter has been Paul just talking about how he lives his Christian life. This is his personal example. And he's instructing us and has been instructing us on this important matter of the believer's freedom, the believer's liberty. And right up to this point, he has been bouncing back and forth between the theme of his rights and his restraint of those rights for the greater progress of the gospel. But as we come to these final verses, he's going to sketch out this paradigm, this model for the proper use of Christian freedom by focusing in on the theme of our Christian race and and the Christian's reward. 
He's just finished telling us that even though he is free in Christ, he has chosen of his own free will to make himself a slave of all in order to win them to the hope of the gospel. And he says, and we saw this last Sunday, he can accommodate himself to the various audiences that he is, um, finds himself in. He can accommodate himself without compromising true Christian freedom because his conscience, strictly speaking, is answerable to God and God alone in his revealed will. So any restrictions that he places upon himself in conforming his behavior to others any, any restrictions he places on himself only restricts him in the outward acts. It has no capacity, his point is it has no capacity to touch the inward governing of the soul. And so it is therefore not difficult, nor is it ter- a tyrannical at all, for Paul to restrain his rights in hopes of securing greater gospel fruit. That is the whole point of the last section as he interacts with different groups of people. And we are challenged to imitate his example. But as we turn the corner into verses 24 to 27 this morning, um, he explains to us the seriousness and the effort with which he runs the race of his Christian life, pivoting in verse 24 to tell us to run to win. And Paul's exhortation in this chapter, and particularly the whole, uh, these final verses, are a description of mature Christian discipleship. Not only is he defending his apostleship, but he is He is sketching out for us a portrait of mature Christian discipleship for our benefit. He says, run to win the race of the Christian life. This is how we live. This is both Paul's example and his exhortation. And he tells us what is required for the task to get the job done. And we can break that down into three distinct parts. First, running to win involves exercising discipline. Secondly, running to win necessitates knowing our goal. And thirdly, running to win necessitates esteeming the prize. That's our outline for this morning. So we begin in verses 25 and again in verse 27. And we see that running to win requires exercising discipline. He says in verse 21, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. And then down in verse 27, he he says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. Now, in Paul's days, just like today, people love sports. They were nutty for their sports, just like so many of us are even now. And everyone in Paul's day was familiar with what this sporting event that happened in the city of Corinth that was very much like the Olympic Games, but it was called the Isthmian Games the Isthmian games. And uh, so as Paul speaks of this, these, uses these word pictures, these metaphors and so forth of athletic competition, they would no doubt have had in the front of their minds this, this, these Isthmian games that were a part of the city. Every two years, athletes from all over Greece would converge on Corinth in honor of the Greek god Poseidon, the earth-shaking god of the sea. And there was a stadium in this city, there was a theater, there was a hippodrome for various athletic events to take place. The athletes competed in foot races, which were probably the most popular events. They, um, they wrestled, they boxed, they threw a discus and javelin. There was a long jump, chariot racing, and everyone's favorite, poetry reading and singing. 
The athletes would compete in these events uh, every couple of years. And according to several inscriptions contemporary to Paul, women were also competing in this. Uh, we see examples of a 200-meter dash, speaking of specific uh, individuals, women as well, who won these races. Every competitor in these games would have undergone intense and extended training, sometimes for uh, nearly a year before a competition. They would have exercised strict discipline over every facet of their lives. A passage from uh, Epictetus, a, a Greek Stoic philosopher, illustrates the agony these athletes subjected themselves to in participation. He said, would you be a victor in the games? So in good truth would I, for it is a glorious thing. But consider what must go before and what may follow, and so proceed to the attempt. You must then live by rule, eat what will be disagreeable, Refrain from delicacies. You must oblige yourself to constant exercises at the appointed hour in heat and cold. You must abstain from wine and cold liquors. In a word, you must be as submissive to all directions of your master as to those of a physician. End quote. Competition in these games was not for the weekend warriors. <laughs> they were not weekend warriors. It is no wonder then that this word that Paul says compete, everyone who competes in these games is the word from which we derive our English word agonize has the idea of extreme effort. Paul says just as an athlete who competes to win exercises strict self-control in every area of their lives, he too, he says, runs to win the race of his Christian life by exercising self-control in all aspects of his walk. He goes on in verse 27 to say, I discipline my body and make it my slave. This word for discipline is an interesting word. It means to give a black eye to, is the translation. I remember watching a little one a number of years ago. Out of the blue declared that they were super brave and tough and then they made a fist with their little hand, proceeded to punch themselves right on the bridge of their nose, which hurts, like that really hurts, right? And immediately broke into tears. It's definitely, uh, that, that's the picture here. That's what this word discipline means. Paul's saying he beats down his body. That is the stubborn sin nature that remains, even though he's a new creature in Christ. And he brings it into submission by exercising self-control over every dimension of his life, because that is what running to win the race requires. Why does he go to such extreme lengths? Why does he bring his body into submission? Well, he tells us, he tells us, he says, so that after I have preached to others, verse 27, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul wants to make sure that his transformational message is backed up by a transformed life. He was afraid. He was afraid that if he didn't exercise self-control in everything, he would leave that door open for a right accusation of his hypocrisy. And so he was afraid that if he didn't exercise self-control, he would be preaching a transformational message that wasn't itself backed up by a transformed life. And we should be fearful of that as well as Christians. Every one of us who takes the name of Christ upon us must understand that we are proclaiming a transformational message through the gospel, and that we must be able to back that up by a transformed life. 
We are running to win. And running the race to win requires discipline over every facet of our walk. That means taking pains to read and study and fill up your mind with the Word of God. We need to be taking in the Scriptures all the time. If you want the fruit of your life to be the fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, self-control, those, those things are, if the fruit of the Spirit is to be part of your life, then you must take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It means taking all pains necessary to pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17 commands us to do that. We need to be in constant communion through prayer with the triune God. Prayer demonstrates our love for God. Prayer communicates and shows our dependence on God. Prayer demonstrates our submission to God. It means taking all pains necessary to put sin to death in your own heart and life. We don't tolerate sin. We don't cozy up to sin. We don't put yourself, don't put yourself in a position of temptation. Flee from sin. Make no provision for the flesh. Confess sin. Put the Lord Jesus on in its place. Because we are free in Christ. And this is Paul's point. This is why this connects so closely with his discussion of our freedom. He, he, he doesn't say it, but if you look at Romans 6, verse 2, Paul asks this rhetorical question, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? And the obvious answer is we can't. To be a Christian means that we have been set free from sin's power over our lives. He goes on to say in Romans 6, verse 7, he who has died with Christ is freed from sin. This is the glorious hope of the gospel, that we are no longer slaves to sin. So it means taking all necessary steps to put sin to death in our lives. It also means that we take every necessary pain to participate in the corporate worship and fellowship of the church. There's a reason why we gather every week. We gather because when the church comes together, something happens that doesn't happen when we're apart. When you're not here, not only do you get shortchanged, but the church gets shortchanged. Because you're not here, you're not able to stir others up to love and good deeds, and we're not able to do that for you in the same way as if you are physically present. When you're not here, you're not able to encourage my soul and my heart, and, and I'm not able to encourage your heart and soul as well. And when you're not here, something is missing. We are running the race of the Christian life to win. And running the race to win requires exercising discipline. Secondly, if we're to run to win, it will require knowing our goal. We need to know the goal. Look at verse 26. He says, Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim, and I box in such a way as not beating the air. Now, he's still using the imagery of the games. And he's calling his attention to two events, the foot races and the boxing. He says he runs in such a way as not without aim. He boxes in such a way as not beating the air. And of course, we understand this. No sane athlete would compete in a foot race and just start running around all different directions. 
right? No, no opponent, no true boxer is going to get in the ring and expend all their energy boxing the air, shadow boxing before the thing even starts. The point being that he doesn't wander around aimlessly in his Christian life. He makes it clear that as he runs the race of his Christian walk, he knows exactly what his goal is, and he, he deploys all of his resources to achieve that end. That's his purpose. I saw a cartoon years ago, and uh, it was two men, two little Martian alien people looking down on Earth, and um, they're looking down on the world here, everyone scurrying around, and one little Martian says to the other, what are they doing? And the other replied, they're going. But he said, the first one said, well, where are they going? Oh, he said, they're not going anywhere. They're just going. And sadly, that's, that's a way to describe a lot of Christians. They're not going anywhere. They're just going. They're just going. You get up each morning, take care of your kids. You head out to work. You come home. You crash on the couch. You hug your husband or wife. You go to sleep. You do it the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and then one day you wake up and you're 75, and that's it. You, you start the cycle all over again, and one day you've done, you realize you've done nothing for God. Not only are many individual Christians wandering around going nowhere, but many churches are wandering around going nowhere. Because the biblical mandate is not clearly defined for the people from Scripture, many churches and ministries simply exist to exist because they've always been there. There's no goal. They're not striving toward any particular mark. And so they end up spinning their wheels. If we are going to run to win, as Paul commands us to do, we have to know our goal individually and collectively. As individual Christians, the goal we are running to win is that imperishable wreath of life eternal. The New Testament speaks about the future reward, and we're going to dive into this in more detail next Sunday. The individual Christian has a future reward laid up for us in heaven. James chapter 1, verse 12 calls it the crown of life. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8, he speaks about what he calls the crown of righteousness. 1 Peter 5, verse 4, Peter speaks about the unfading crown of glory. And Revelation 2, verse 10, speaks about the crown of life. The goal that you and I are striving towards is this reward and I want to unpack for us next Sunday, what is that and why does it matter? But for this morning's purpose, we simply need to understand that we are striving toward the goal, the reward of life eternal with the triune God who loved us before the foundation of the world and sent his one and only son in the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish salvation and to share his life with us that is why Paul fought what he calls the good fight of faith. That is why Epaphroditus, remember him from, Ephesians, uh, from Philippians chapter 2? That is why he came close to death for the work of Christ. That is why John, as he writes the Revelation, was exiled to the island of Patmos. 
That's why James, the half-brother of our Lord, was pushed to his death off the corner of the Temple Mount and beaten with clubs until he died. They all had a goal, and the goal was the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And because the goal was crystal clear, they ran the race in such a way as to win. But what about you? What about me? What goals are you running towards? Are you running to win the imperishable crown? Are you running to win the unfading crown of glory? Or are we running to win that perishable wreath? Or even worse, are we just going? We're running the race of the Christian life to win. And running the race to win requires knowing our goal. Third, if we're to run to win, it will require esteeming the prize. We must esteem or hold high value the prize. I want you to notice the contrast that Paul makes here in, um, in verse 25. The winners of the Isthmian games were given a wreath. They were given a, a wreath as a prize to signify that you know, they were the they were the victor in that event, whether it was a foot race or boxing or chariot race or whatever. Now, originally, that wreath was made out of dry, wild celery. But later, it was upgraded to a pine wreath. Can you imagine training for an entire year? An entire year. Exercising discipline in the heat of summer and the cold of winter, not eating any delicious food for months and months not enjoying any free time to speak of, abusing your body day after day, week after week, month after month, month just for the chance, not even the assured, sure, but the chance of winning a crown of salad. <laughs> That's what these people did. The epitaph of a boxer by the name of Agathos Daimon it was written, inscribed on a funerary monument in Olympia in Greece, said this, quote, Here he died, boxing in the stadium, having prayed to Zeus for a wreath or death. Age 35, farewell. Well, we know how the Lord answered that prayer. For this competitor, second place was not an option. He died esteeming the prize. Paul says everyone who competes in the games went to all that expense and made all those sacrifices, ran with all that exertion to win a prize basically made out of plants, a perishable wreath, a prize that was intrinsically worth nothing. It fades away, but we, he said, are running to win an imperishable wreath, the sure hope of life eternal. Do you understand what Paul's saying here? He is pointing out, it is an argument from the lesser to the greater. He says, if the athlete is that deadly serious, if they are that concerned about winning a perishable wreath, how much more deadly serious and how much more effort should we be exerting to run to win the imperishable wreath of life eternal? You know, for some of us, it's not that we don't know what the goal is, it's that we don't value it the way we ought. We don't esteem or appreciate it, and we don't consider what it costs the Lord to purchase it for us. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 13, 
Paul sa- or Peter says, um, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy also as, as yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You see, Peter here is reminding you and I this morning of the incredible value of the life eternal because it costs the Savior so much to purchase it for us. The Bible says that each one of us is a hopeless and helpless sinner from the moment we are conceived. Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We live in the lust of our flesh and of our mind, and we are by very nature children destined for wrath. That's our nature. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, he says, you have been saved. You see, God the Father sent his one and only Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit into the world to live the perfect life that you and I would never, ever in a million lifetimes be able to live. And he died the death of a sinner, though he himself was blameless, on a cross to endure what we could never in a million lifetimes endure. And he rose from the grave and is alive today, having made atonement for sins. He gave his life, the scripture says, as a ransom for many. And all who turn to him, all who throw themselves on his mercy and trust in him above all for their forgiveness of sins is immediately, the scripture says, and completely pardoned and given the hope of eternal life, the imperishable wreath. And so I have to ask you this morning, have you trusted Christ? Have you thrown yourself on his mercy? What is it that you are leaning into, what is it that will stand for you in that final day? Will it be the righteousness of Christ that you cover, that covers you like a garment, or will it be your dead works? If you have not trusted Christ, I plead with you, let today be that day. May today be that day. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Lay hold of this imperishable wreath. And for those of us who have trusted Christ, but realize perhaps even as we go through this text this morning, as I've been convicted even this week, that you have not been esteeming the things, uh, excuse me, the imperishable wreath, but have rather esteemed the things of this world more than you ought, we need to remember the value, the great cost that it cost our Savior to purchase it for our, on our behalf. We are running to win the race of the Christian life. We need to esteem the prize. Everyone, 1 John 3 says, who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself even as he is pure. And so this is our calling. This is our, this is Paul's exhortation and it is his example. 
every athlete that competed in the Isthmian Games would gather at a small underground structure called the Pylamon, which was situated near the Temple of Poseidon. And inside this structure, each athlete took an oath to abide by the rules of the game. They broke the oath, they were disqualified. It was in many ways a solemn oath signifying that they were in it to win it. They were ready to exert maximum effort and willing to employ every resource at their disposal within the boundaries of the games to win the prize. I believe that ceremonial oath is what Paul is alluding to in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 5 when he says, also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. I think Paul is alluding to that. Friends, each and every one of us who are in Christ this morning took a solemn oath when we came to the foot of the cross. We took a solemn oath when we repented of our sins and trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. We took a solemn oath, not by our own wisdom or our own insight, but by the grace of God to signify that we were all in. We are all in. We were ready to run the race of our Christian lives seriously and passionately in pursuit of God himself. He is the prize. He is the prize. We took a solemn oath to exercise discipline over every area of our lives in pursuit of godliness. We took a solemn oath knowing that the goal was God and that we were called to lay hold of him we took a solemn oath understanding the exceeding cost and immeasurable value that the Lord Jesus paid to purchase our salvation. We understood that. And friends, you and I need to run the race of the Christian life to win. We cannot be content to just be on the field. We cannot be content to simply be going. We cannot be content to just stumble across the finish line some point. We need to hear the Apostle Paul when he says, run to win. And that is why as a church, we have adopted that as our ministry orienting principle of our ministry philosophy. We are running, we are a church that is running to win. And I pray that you would do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Paul's reminder. Thank you for his example. We see his example all over the New Testament in his letters, in the book of Acts. Everywhere we look, we see Paul's example. And we also now read and clearly see his exhortation that we should go and do likewise. Lord, if there's any here this morning that aren't even in the game because they haven't trusted you, we pray that you would draw their hearts to you. And Lord, for those of us that are kind of let off the pace. Perhaps we've become distracted by the things of this world, or maybe we just ha lost sight of the goal. We've valued other things beyond you. I pray that you would call us back to that which is essential. Help us as a church to be known individually and corporately as a church that is running to win. We ask this by the grace of God in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.